0: Just because somebody in authority has asked you to do something does not mean it's constitutional. Blindly following a direction of someone does not protect you from legal action. Yeah, we want to get real specific about this. Don't do it. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it now is January 2019. And we're starting, I think it's the 12th year of risk management monthly. Rick, can you believe that? There's nothing left to talk about, Greg. (laughs) Except for this issue, where we got 15 things to talk about. You know, over the years, you and I have said, will there still be things to talk about? Well, it never stops. Humans stopped, you know, with the day they stop doing ridiculous things, we'll have to shut the program down. But it hasn't happened yet, my, my friend. Uh, why don't you start out with a comic? This is a great case, which sounds like they're filming a bad movie in Hollywood. Tell us, Rick. This was uh,
1: in the LA Times a couple of days ago. It's entitled Patient Breaks Out of Restraint, Steals Ambulance, Leads, leads Pursuit. And I thought, holy smokes, this guy actually drove the wrong direction on the freeway in Los Angeles. You don't want to do that. It's it's bad enough driving in the right direction on this a, is on
0: a, This is the freeway that leads to, to uh, Las Vegas, right? I
1: fifteen. That's correct. And this guy basically got out of his restraints, and somehow the paramedics were not in the ambulance. He took the ambulance, and and can you imagine what it would have happened if anybody was injured in this? And they will trace this back And was there a doctor? Was there a doctor who ordered this risky business transfer? You bet there was. And they are want to talk to you, doctor, uh, whether this was an appropriate transfer. Did you do it safely? Did you endanger the public or the patient or the ambulance attendants in the process?
0: Yeah, you can get in trouble uh, for restraining, perhaps, when a patient doesn't need it. But you're definitely in trouble if you believe they need it and you don't do it correctly. Here's a rule about restraints. You either do it or you don't do it, but you don't have to it. And what happened here is we've got a halfway kind of deal where that patient could slip restraints or they loosened restraints to move them here or there. And uh, we're just everybody's just lucky in this case that nobody was killed, Rick. This isn't good. Yep. Greg, you have a case. uh, Well, I have a great case. Yeah, you do. Yeah, it really is. And uh, the the beauty of this case is you're going to be asked at some time in your career by somebody in authority, the police, this judge, that judge, all kinds of things, to do something that you're going to say, you know, I'm not sure I should be doing that. But I want you to think about this case because it's important. Intimidation by the police is still intimidation. If they if they have to arrest you, if you have to spend the night in jail, if you have to do something, just understand there is a final authority in this country, uh, the Constitution and... The Supreme Court of the United States, that's what we refer to. Now, we're going to talk to you about a case in which a patient is brought into an emergency department and is forced or the, um, the emergency physician uh, is uh, required by the police to uh, do an e- examination of the patient's colon looking for drugs. Uh, plain X ray, eh? That's okay. That's not a problem. Unfortunately, the police are insistent and want them to go up inside the body with a uh, with a uh, colonoscope and check and see if there's any drugs to be found. Uh, the f- emergency physician, is my understanding, Rick, did check with the hospital's attorney. Is that correct? I, I, yeah, I did read that right. Well, this is.
1: Not only did the police say they wanted this, they had a warrant from a judge. They went to the judge's house and got him to sign this warrant to do this. It, they subsequently acknowledged that the police wrote the warrant and the judge just signed it. And uh, and then, yeah, this poor emergency doctor said, "Well, I better consult the hospital's attorney." And the hospital's attorney said, "Quote: You, uh, this warrant requires that the doctor." Get something up that person's butt by any means to retrieve the suspected drugs,
0: by any means, which yeah. is absurd. Yeah, that, that, that really is absurd. Uh, and, and I think that what we're going to do is use this as a little teaching case. So the situation is there are eight cops. There's somebody with a colonoscope. They're putting this patient under against their will to up and look for drugs. Is there anything that that we can look to in the past for some guidance. And the truth of the matter there is. Now, trust me here, this story is a little bit longer, but absolutely essential. Today, we're going to see the whizzer. Now, you notice I didn't say wizard, I said whizzer. And that's Whizzer White, who was the, uh, the Supreme Court justice who wrote the final decision in a case called California v. Greenwood. We will have the uh, case number uh, for you in the printed copy. Uh, but this is, an, this is a very interesting case, and it has to do with you and your rights as an individual and what they can do to you, your body, and your trash. Laguna Beach, they found some, uh, they found. They're watching a house because they think there's drug activity. They wandered down the alley and found trash. They went through the trash, found things which looked and smelled like drugs. Uh, They then got a warrant uh, to search the house. And what did they find? Of course, drugs. The defense said, this is the fruit of the poison tree. You had no right to go through their garbage. Well, this went all the way to the California Supreme Court. They said, yeah, you can't go through people's garbage. Well, the uh, people in Laguna Beach were so mad they took this all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And in the decision of the U.S. uh, Supreme Court, written by Whizzer White, what he said was, you know, this is the stream of public uh, removal. You expect people from this from the state to show up every week and dump your trash. You've put it behind the house. It's like uh, t- uh, when you put crap in your toilet and flush it, it goes into the public stream, so to speak, of things which now become public as opposed to private. This is this was a huge issue in California on other things. The... Uh, the National Enquirer had gone into uh, the trash of certain people, and it, it was a—it's a big question. So the Supreme Court finally decided to cut on it, and in a six-to-two decision, they said, "You know what? Stuff that is in the normal stream, available, everybody—you can look at. A, a police officer can get without a warrant. They don't need a warrant to get this." And this particular case changed the way American law enforcement work because they took a lot of this decision and put it forward onto your your email communications, onto your this, onto your that. And uh, this was a huge, huge case. Now, having done this, let's look at obtaining specimens in an emergency department. Because there's stuff that's in your body and there's stuff that's out of your body and there's stuff that we have a usual and customary process to get. Urine and blood, the Supreme Court has said, yeah, taking that with a warrant is okay because uh, it's a common medical procedure. Several cases have been gone to the Supreme Court where one in which they used an NG tube to suck drugs out of some guy's stomach. And they said it offended the sensibilities of the court. That was the Roca decision. And they said, you can't do that. Um, other cases have gone. And where they, where they put a prisoner in a room for 24 or 48 hours until he had a bowel movement and could then collect the drugs, Supreme Court said, yeah, that's okay. That's good, but no place did the Supreme Court ever say you could go up inside their rectum. That is not a usual and customary uh, collection process in the United States. So, having done all that and said all that, this is what happened. Uh, they went ahead. They they did not find drugs. As a matter of fact, um, although that's immaterial to the to the decision here. Uh, and they were sued, the hospital, the emergency doc, everybody sued uh, because it violated this person's, uh, let me do this correctly, 4th, 5th, and um, 14th Amendment rights. Uh, a very interesting case. So we're going to go through a little more of this and let you know that just because somebody in authority has asked you to do something – does not mean it's constitutional. Right. Right. This poor
1: ER doc, the uh, cops said to do it. The judge said to do it. The hospital attorney said to do it. The hospital attorney probably knew nothing about these kinds of uh, (laughs) Supreme Court decisions.
0: Yeah. Anytime, by the way, you wonder whether your your hospital attorney should be uh, telling you what to do. Ask them, give them those names of the cases I just gave you. See how much they know about those cases, and you're going to be tragically disappointed. Attorneys are like doctors. They have a little small area that they're good at. They don't know everything about the law. I promise you that. So
1: listen, yeah, you you should be willing to spend a night in jail and say, no, I'm not going to do it. Uh, And to tell you the truth, spending a night in jail may be better than the shift that you're now working.
0: Right. Exactly. By the way, the the newspaper story that that uh, discussed this case uh, commented on the fact that the Supreme Court has set standards. Now, there's no way that uh, some local judge, state judge, uh, even federal judge can turn that around without an action and a decision by the Supreme Court. Uh, so whenever they say there's there's always a but in these cases, in this case, there really is a but, therefore. They uh, pointed out in the
1: story uh, a 2013 uh, decision in New Mexico resulted in a $1.6 million uh, granting a federal appeals court Ruled in favor of a man who was sedated and practiced scope. Our person was made rendered unconscious and scoped This guy was sedated and scoped And uh, just don't do it Thanks to uh, Jason Stromberg and uh, Bill Durkies For sending this story from uh, Syracuse Is where all this transpired
0: uh, later this year, we're going to have some uh, some cases which re- which regard to taking of blood again, which has uh, come up in several jurisdictions, and uh, we'll have Mark Calvert, and perhaps some other attorneys, uh, sitting here with us. But uh, you ought to know the basics of what the federal government has decided, because the last thing you want uh, fo- blindly following a direction of someone. Does not protect you from legal action.
1: Yeah, we want to get real specific about this. Don't do it. Uh,
0: don't do it. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. You could give them a laxative. Do that. That's fine. Okay. Here's like five yep. of these X-Lax pills. Go to it. You know. But uh, but obviously the person has to consent to take those on top of it.
0: Yeah. Even if they don't, if they don't consent, I wouldn't force any pills down anybody. The police have nowhere to go and nothing to do. They can. Uh, that's what they do at the border. Uh, it, when they pulled these guys aside they just say, here, sit here for two days and we'll see if you produce a stool and God help you. If you, if you produce a baggie with uh, cocaine in it,
1: uh, Carlos race, MDJD. Uh, we interviewed Carlos back in May. He wrote a Yes, we did. He wrote a article in the December issue of Emergency Medicine News, which for California physicians is frightening. This is a landmark decision, basically uh, changing the legal standards to determine whether you are an independent contractor or not. I can tell you that in California for decades, uh, the state just kind of looked the other way with regards to how carefully... They, uh, perceived emergency physicians and their, uh, uh, independent contract status. Because to tell you the truth, I don't think we met, we met the standards even before this decision. But in any case, this decision, uh, occurred basically saying that, um, these doctors don't meet the new criteria and they need to be treated as employees, um, that means that the employer has to pay Social Security taxes, Medicare, workers' compensation, health, health insurance, the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, and the other thing that Carlos didn't mention, or he may have, but I didn't, I didn't recall it, is that, you know, independent contractors basically have uh, not much in the way of rights. You can terminate an ind- independent contractor pretty much at will. Uh, you cannot do that with employees. Employees do have rights. They have to be counseled. They have to, you have to document that you've done that. You have to document it over and over again that they are continuing to make a, uh, these same errors, et cetera. And then maybe you could fire an employee. But, uh, uh, and I think that that's kind of a big deal because most of us are not used to going through those tedious but required uh, uh, things in dealing with
0: employees. By the way, if if you're wondering why the state of California did this, it's just like the state of Michigan. They looked and made sure they had a very difficult hill for you to go up because they'd rather get the taxes collected, the this and the other thing on a regular monthly basis rather than having a physician uh, fill out all those forms, and then mail in estimated taxes and all that kind of stuff. They want somebody to take all that money, workman's comp, this debt, another thing, out in one check and send to the government. And as far as uh, there there is a test, which most states use, to determine whether you're an independent contractor, if you go through that 20-part test, it's unlikely that you actually meet the standards of an independent contractor. They came back after our group here in the state of Michigan, and they said, "Fine, we just like four or five hundred thousand uh, dollars because we think you're the ones who should be uh, mailing in the taxes, the workman's comp, the this, that, another thing." Um, California has just gone on record as telling us what we really already knew, and that's most emergency docs do not meet the criteria to be full independent contractors.
1: You know, this comes up in other areas, too. There was a thing about Uber drivers. Uber drivers said uh, they uh, wanted to be employees and uh, and attacked the idea of being independent contractors. So uh, that's going to be bad news for Californians because I know that there are a lot of groups here who still treat their doctors as independent contractors, and this is going to be a big, big uh, change for them.
0: Yeah. I think that, uh, we thank, uh, uh, Carlos for, uh, doing this article. Um, it's one of those things and we know, Rick and I know from who's listening, a lot of you out there are major players with your group, your your directors of departments, that sort of thing. It's at your level where this kind of decision is made. It's usually not at the work and stiffs level. It's almost always in the management section and understand now that there's a decision out there, they will expect you to come in line with that decision and uh, just understand you can, you can get sued. For not doing, uh, not following the rules as laid out now in the state of California. Gregory, tell us about uh, non compete agreements. Can I get out Uh, of it? uh, Can you get out of it? No, probably not, depending on how it's written. This is an article uh, with Medscape written by Lee Page, November of uh, 2018. We will include the. the website when we, uh, when we print it up, and they, he asks a very important question here, and that is, what recourses do you have when there are uh, these uh, clauses in your contract? The answer is very simple. You need to know state by state what has been decided in your area. States have different needs. In general, uh, there, there may be, and it may be insisted upon by the hospital, that there are restrictive covenants in that contract. Let's say you're in a medium-sized town, there's five hospitals, uh, they may not want the doctors working in their emergency department working in other emergency departments. The, they think their doctors are their competitive advantage. They've given somebody, a, the, somebody somehow a unique contract to run that department. So you need to check on those kinds of restrictions, how they're worded in the contract. Also, you need to look at whether you're talking about service restrictions currently or post-service restrictions, if the group loses the contract, can you still stay at that hospital? Now, uh, that, again, varies state to state. There are all kinds of states which don't think that that's fair. They just don't allow it. But you ought to know that there are others who do, and there are rules. If they put post-service restrictions in your contract, There are three areas that have to be touched actually four. a over is the restriction overly broad. For example, can the hospital say, uh, can the group say you can't work anywhere in this state? No, that would clearly be overreaching. It would be too broad. It would be too limiting to your abilities. Um, they claim it challenges their legal business interests. How do you prove that? What is meant by that? Uh, and some states uh, agree with it. Some do not. Alleging a breach of contract or any serious breach, this is the, you should know about that before you put your name on the piece of paper. Understand most groups don't want to pursue this stuff because it is bad publicity. Uh, it's bad to tell residents who are finishing and who are coming to look for a job, oh, by the way, we've gone after people. It's not fun for anybody. But you need to be aware that restrictions of uh, restrictive covenants vary state to state. You know, I, I think one
1: of the points is um, if you're trying to get out of this restricted covenant uh, and the you went through a couple of the ways that that can be attacked – the premise of this is, if they're done right, you're going to have a hard time doing this. Uh, but here are the things that you can look at. You know, you mentioned a couple. This is an alleged breach. The idea, if you can say that um, there's a serious breach of of the contract, and as such, a serious breach of the contract would void the restrictive covenant uh part of that contract because the, once there's a breach of the contract the whole contract is breached you don't break breach a little part it's like yes or no and so that was one of the issues that they brought up the specific idea about legitimate business interests is, is why are they limiting your ability to work is it is it solely for uh competitive reasons or are there other more substantive reasons and the one that i kind of like is you know, the idea that uh, we're in a rural area. There's another hospital uh, nearby. They are not able to get emergency physicians. Nobody wants to work there. It's, it's, it's a small critical access hospital. It's 25 beds. It's it's There's nobody there. But I am willing to go there. And the community says, man, that'd be terrific. But your restrictive covenant says you can't work there. That would be an opportunity to potentially break a restrictive covenant uh, agreement. He also points out that there are restrictive covenants uh, that are, well, first of all, the AMA is not in favor of them. They view this as restraint of trade. And that there are states that really don't recognize them, particularly California, the People's Republic of California doesn't recognize this stuff. Massachusetts, Colorado, Oklahoma, Oregon, Alabama, New Mexico, North Dakota, Montana, Delaware, and Rhode Island.
0: But Michigan is not listed, Greg. No, it is not. Uh, But we have uh, tried several of these cases. And basically, it goes back to what we said earlier. Were they reasonably restrictive? You can't say to someone you can't work in this neighborhood for 10 years when it's the hospital, if the new group has come in, they can't say you can't work for that group for five years. You know, if there was a six-month requirement, the, 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 um, the courts may view that as reasonable. But uh, believe me, there are plenty of things the courts here have not viewed as reasonable, although they have not said you can't have restrictive covenants.
1: This article is really quite detailed and if any of you are dealing with or consider dealing with a restrictive co- covenant challenge, you uh, certainly want to get this uh, paper out of uh, Medscape.
0: Yeah. Under- understand that physicians are uh in a, a different group whether you're employed by a university, whether there's a group you're employed by a group that's working there. Um there is such a thing as, as a dismissal which does not require um, evidence of bad behavior. They're called at-will. You're an at-will employee. That means they can give you a, a letter saying that uh, you have a 90-day termination clause or whatever it is, and they don't have to give you a reason why. And the reason for that is in certain businesses and professions, uh, the courts understand uh, the person who's managing that hospital has an obligation to produce the best product it can. Uh, They don't want a prolonged uh, litigation uh, for, for your bad behavior in the department. Um, now, there are things that they can they can give you immediate termination for, but uh, it 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 is different with certain employees. If you're the person who mops the floors in the hospital, you have a different relationship to your employer than at will employees. They're quite different.
1: I guess a lot of the people in the administration must be at will since Trump can fire them. You know, that he's gone. You're out.
0: Yeah. No, yeah. no. They're all at will. And this is funny because mostly in the federal government, you can't fire anybody. <laughs> exactly. As you know, the veterans hospitals have had that, that, that problem that getting rid of the incompetent is uh, almost Im- uh, impossible. All right. What is, what has Ken got to tell us these days? Ken
1: Toltz is a new subscriber who basically said that he has listened to multiple years worth of stuff uh, in his commutes. And, yeah.
0: uh, We've, contrib- written, we've written Ken and told him there's a 12 step program to back off of risk management monthly. <laughs> he doesn't do it. <laughs> he wrote an
1: article in ASEP now, actually, uh, it's dated November 14th of, uh, 2018, where he detailed a Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Supreme court decision, March 27th, regarding a major, uh, ER contracting group in pets in Pittsburgh. And, uh, it was all about one of their doctors was involved in a supposedly missed MI case, and the plaintiff attorney found out that the EDAR ED directors maintained a quote-unquote performance file on the physicians, and the plaintiff attorney wanted that file on this doctor.
0: Yeah, well, let's, I'm going to stick this in because some stuff we give you is little things. This is big. Uh, and it's the kind of thing where docs are so concerned with the output, the the product we produce. Law is concerned with the process, and this is 100% process and could have been prevented. So pay attention here. This is important. Rick?
1: Yeah. Ken, basically you went on to say that the ED contracting group's uh, internal physician reviews were not protected under the state's peer, peer review statute which generally would not allow this to be uh, taken into open court. And that statute specifically said, in essence, I'm uh, paraphrasing, that this ER contracting group was not a provider of health care. They were a business that supplied ER doctors to the hospitals. And these peer review protections applied to clinicians, not to contracting groups. And so the idea here is you got to be careful. Ken came up with six recommendations to deal with any kind of private uh, evaluations that you're making on your physicians. Uh, First of all, he said, review your state's peer review statute to ensure that you're in strict compliance. Two, confirm written, written affiliation between the hospital and the ED group or the director to specifically perform the peer review process. They want to bolt you to the hospital because the hospital is where a lot of these protections uh, lie. Number three, consider making the ED director a member of the hospital's peer review process and, 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 and the committee ensure every hospital has a peer review process. Get that yeah. director on there.
0: Yeah. I, it- Always seemed to me that I was on everybody 's committee like that of the hospital. you didn't have a choice because of course uh, about a third of the problems in the hospital they think start in the ER, but make sure it's in the contract that the uh, whoever it is, member of the department, will serve on this hospital's committee, which is protected under under state law.
1: Then he he points out that we should identify all peer review personnel, materials, and processes as affirmatively falling within the peer review statutory authority, which basically says everything that we do, we're going to say on here, whether it does or not, this this, uh, is uh, covered by the statute of the state of Pennsylvania regarding peer review uh, confidentiality.
0: Yeah, per, uh, basically every document we had from those committees uh, was stamped. Not the fact that it was part of peer review, it, it cited the Michigan uh, documents that cover it, the laws that cover it, and that uh, no one is to take these uh, articles away, they are protected, uh, they're shredded documents. Uh, all of that needs to be reinforced.
1: Yeah, he, number six is... Mark all peer review correspondence in any form <laughs> written oral electronic as protected peer review material, whether it is or not, it doesn't matter <laughs> you
0: know? yeah no exactly <laughs> and and these days, when you get this peer, ma- peer review material in, there' are more disclaimers on the paper uh you know let's say they said agree with the above. And then you got to read the next two pages, which are all well, boilerplate. Listen, yeah. we get
1: emails from our friends who are directors on their, uh, you know, hospital email, and there's like this paragraph, four-inch-long paragraph at the bottom of every cutesy little email about the uh, confidentiality or non-confidentiality of these communications. Anyway, uh, just be aware that uh, if you're doing any kind of a peer review process internally, that it uh, it, it is discoverable unless you start trying to be aware of what Ken's talking about here. We'll also have the uh, website link it to this article as well.
0: Yeah, and and Ken uh, Ken is absolutely right that this is state by state. You do mm-hmm. have to have somebody who understands that state laws and how it's functioning uh, to let you know what's going on. If you're in the state of Nevada, for example, it does not protect Peer review process. So that's available for at least, it's what we call discoverable. Uh, Plaintiffs can know about that, and it may not be all of it is admissible, but it's at least discoverable. So know what you're doing and what you're writing down because it can be ugly uh, to have honest discussion uh, produced by the other side. All right. Now, we're back. We're in Boston. This article comes from the Boston Globe magazine. Now, in November 2018, I have no idea the general quality or what what their axe is to grind, but this talked about detailing the story of a young woman who died of a cardiac arrest feet away from the front door of the Somerville Hospital ED um uh in in the Boston area, the story was written by the woman 's husband. the gist of the story. the patient called nine one one because she was at the door of the e d and couldn't get in now, in actuality, she was at the locked a a previously used locked ambulance entrance. The real door was about a hundred feet away. She collapsed 29 feet from the real door. Now, you would think that they'd been picked up on this. Unfortunately, EMS was sent to find her. One of the nurses had gone outside, uh, just outside the regular doors, couldn't find her. It took them about 10 minutes. She'd arrested by then. She was in the ICU for seven days and expired. She died. Although it turns out there was a series of events that brought about this tragedy, one of the key ones uh was felt by the by the husband and everyone who's looked at this revolved around signage. Which door is a, is appropriate? Which one isn't? Did they still have an emergency sign over the closed uh ambulance entrance? All these things do make a difference, and when you're under pressure, and you've got somebody in the family is sick. Um, this is important. I, I I think it was interesting that they comment that it took two years after the incident and pissing and moaning back and forth for the hospital to apologize for their uh, signage. Rick, what's been your experience here? Well,
1: I looked into this case in some depth. The article written by the husband is really well done. Uh, very professional uh, it's not inflammatory, it is just very factual, and he goes into really what happened to his um, his wife uh, there is there one of the issues was signage, but there were, were a variety of other issues but I can tell you that I had an incident in my family when we were in Norfolk, and I was taking my grandson to the emergency department, with some urgency. And uh, there was a sign out toward the street that said emergency. But I could not, honestly, Greg, for the life of me, find the driveway to get into this. This this hospital was set way back on this campus. And um, I couldn't, we couldn't, I was with other people. None of us could find the way to get into this place. And ultimately, we got, uh, we saw some ambulances, drove up behind them. We were nowhere near the parking lot. We were no nowhere near the entrance, the proper entrance we were We were the ambulances I said, "Why are these ambulances blocking the driveway? They weren't blocking the driveway. They were parked where they were supposed <laughs> to be parked yeah. so i I can yeah. see how this can happen It's like you know in retrospect, you can see why this would be a problem in California. I think it's really hard to screw this up. I mean the signage requirements. Are very very uh, prominent. Uh, they're they're huge, and they've got signs all over the place. But in in Virginia, I can tell you this was a, this was an issue in this case. And obviously, this poor lady. There was a video of the ER nurse getting uh, going through the ER entrance, looking for this lady. She stepped out about three feet from the door, looked around and came back. Had she gone a little further, this lady was 29 feet from the door. She had collapsed on one of the benches that, the, that ha- the hospital out there had near its parking lot, 29 feet, and she yeah. died.
0: Now, all of us uh, remember the days when I was a medical student at the old, old uh, hospital in Ann Arbor. Uh, we had tape along the floor, and they were various colors of uh, tape. And you, were, patients were so uh, told to follow the red line to, for X-ray or the green line for lab or whatever it is. And, of course, every night the big machines would come in and wash the floor. And so within a, a week or two, the tape was gone. All of us knew one of our jobs was uh, to, to see people looking lost and to say, can we help you find something, and, and the truth is, uh, I wouldn't have been able to follow those uh, uh, tapes because half of them were gone. so uh, so I, there's a rule here, and that is, if it's not easily available, easily findable, it's not good. All those companies that deal with all of humanity, Disney World is the best. You cannot get lost at Disney World. You cannot lose your car. You cannot do anything because they said, you know, that's kind of important, too, that you got to get here and get out of here. And they've worked it out much better than a lot of the hospitals have. Our,
1: Our family had two instances where they were going to the emergency department and they were remodeling the emergency department seriously. So the whole front entrances were shut down, plywood up, and they created a new entrance. And the issue there was, was it adequately uh, uh, clear that this was the way to go to get into the emergency department? The other thing in this case is two years to do an apology? You know, come on now. You know, everybody's so – you know, there's this whole business about a rapid, appropriate apology, not necessarily, you know, indicating your culpability, but an apology – depending on the apology laws in your state, it should not have taken two years for the hospital to say something here when the lady was 29 feet from their door for crying out loud.
0: You know, saying I'm sorry is not saying I'm guilty. What it's just saying is we're sorry that this happened and I think they are sorry that it happened. And it's, it's just one of those things which we might think about, you might think about as you look at your own institution or you're planning on doing renovation, make sure that the signage changes with it because that that really can get people in trouble. Rick, catch us up on some more emails. Well, you know, the first
1: one is rather (laughs) remarkable. It's a handwritten note that was mailed to our office that they then scanned and sent me electronically. And uh, interestingly, the topic is the electronic medical, medical record. I, <laughs> I like, Rick, I think that's <laughs> part of the joke. I really do. Well, basically, this person challenged my opinion and and I guess it's advice not to read dictated medical records. After you've dictated them, whether it be through uh, some third world country or by some kind of immediate process where it's a voice dictation system, whatever you do – that don't bother don't bother reading it and uh i have a an attorney friend who's happens to be a doctor who gave me the reason why he suggests not doing it because he says once you start correcting a part of the record it will be assumed that you have reviewed and then checked the entire record and he is of the view and i think it's reasonable that most people will say you know, these guys are busy. These people are these people are, are are in a hurry. It's in a called an emergency department for crying out loud. And for them to sit down and to review whether these things are accurate, when in fact they are accurate the vast majority of the time, then it's just kind of not a good use of their time. And basically he takes the all or none approach. And most of us are not gonna to want to do the all approach. So we're gonna should take the none approach. I I I have a paper in our database, and I think that we've talked about it before. We have, yes. Where they looked at uh, a bunch of claims, a large number of claims, thousands of claims, and they found that the electronic medical record was involved in something like nine of those claims. And in none of those instances was the patient directly hurt as a result of the error in the electronic medical records uh, transcription.
0: And yeah, so I think, Rick, there were like 60,000 It was It was some ridiculous cases. number. And, <laughs> and,
1: and yet the weirdest <laughs> part about that paper was it said, we recommend, therefore, that you review all of the records, when in fact the data was just the opposite. It, 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 the real conclusion should be, as a result of this, we think it's a total waste of your time to do this.
0: Yeah, I- exactly. And if you... The worst thing is to review some and not others because then they come to you in court and say, why this one? Why that one? Uh, and you can always say, I used to write down by my name, SPT, signed prior to transcription reading and the uh, bottom line here is that if you're not going to do it on a very regular basis, don't do it at all and I've never seen in all the cases I've reviewed, where you could not explain, well, they they didn't understand this word or that word, but it never changes the sense of the paragraph. I mean you understand what the doctor is saying and what they're wanting to do. And there are always names or of specific physicians or or procedures, something like that, which they won't with the machine will not correct completely. But you know what? I've never seen that a problem when somebody just says, well, this is what it's supposed to be. You know how machines are. And, you know, juries uh, understand that sort of thing. It is not a it's not a uh, an issue which changes cases. And the official
1: record should be the voice file that you created that is somewhere up in the cloud that can be stored up there for the seven years uh, that a a lawsuit may be uh, generated. So, the idea is there is other documentations other than that poorly transcribed record,
0: yep, all right, Rick, we do have other uh long time uh, listeners, and we're so grateful for you, uh, both all of you. six uh, yeah both of you yes um and and we would like to uh, answer one of the questions I got the question uh says uh. Yeah, We advise not signing death certificates. Uh, And let me just tell you, we're taking a much stronger view on where doctors put their names. You shouldn't be signing a death certificate unless you understand that case and know that person. Um, Most of the traumatic deaths we see will, will fall under medical examiner laws for that particular state. The patient will need to be seen by the pathologist to do autopsy, and then that person who has the best view of the case ought to sign the death certificate. Yeah. If, you, yeah, if you got grandma coming from a nursing home who's been taken care of by a physician for 10 years, who do you think knows that woman the best? You, who pronounced her dead in the department, or that physician, I I think... It is inappropriate for emergency docs who don't know the history, this, that, and another thing, to be deciding what the death is. The largest source of fiction in America is the cause of death on death certificates. Um, I think I mentioned once here you know, that I, I used to put down short of breath. Well, that always made them very unhappy up in medical records. And I say, that's what I saw. Woman came in, no heartbeat, short of breath, and uh, she's dead. Uh, And they'd say, well, that doesn't tell us all the other things we need. I said, speak to her doctor. Because when you put your name on it, are there going to be life insurance issues? Are there going to be this, that, or another thing issue? Don't get involved in signing death certificates if you can avoid it.
1: Was that cardiac arrest due to a P.E.? a myocardial infarction, aortic dissection, a poisoning. You know, you have no idea. And, and so car- coroner's cases are coroner's cases. It's not your call. So, so make them a coroner's case. Don't sign death certificates. The other thing is you can obviously pronounce people dead, but that used to be a hassle. And a long, long time ago, uh it was routine for emergency physicians to be called throughout the hospital to pronounce people dead. That I think that that... Would be an extraordinarily rare situation going on now. Somehow they, the nurses have been able to take like a 200-hour class to learn how to pronounce people dead.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad so that that, that happened. Resolved. No, I used to have to go up and do that, and it never made any sense to me. But because uh, the nurses can see if there's a pulse or breathing just as well as I can, that was just that was just crazy. Uh. What do we have
1: here? Okay. Yeah, this one is – so my issue was not reading the dictated medical record. They went after me for that. Now we've got somebody going after you, Greg. This <laughs> is, a, this is a, another one of our few loyal listeners.
0: Yeah, these, this is what our friends say about us. You is that contesting your
1: issue about – Greg says I'm an anti-test guy. This says how does that attitude work? when you're considering uh, risk management perspectives. So our listener notes that in reference to picking up early sepsis cases, while I, this is a quote, while I don't test well patients with obvious viral syndromes, sn- sniffles and sneezing, just about every who, everyone who might have a significant infection, including back pain in the right clinical context, gets a screening CRP, urinalysis, and often a chest x-ray. So our listener basically suggests two things. One, the diagnostic and therapeutic standard of care is creeping up over time. The public, other doctors, and the courts expect more of us than they did ten or twenty years ago when you were practicing, Greg. Okay, yeah, I, yeah, thanks. I, 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 thanks. Added I appreciate that. Right, He's basically yeah, yeah. saying we're not we're, we're we're behind the times. Yes, and right. The, and the expectations are different uh, now. And number two, is it possible to reduce medical legal risk by being a protest guy rather than an anti test guy
0: and therefore make earlier and more accurate diagnoses all right i'm not going to be a i'm not going to be a hard guy on this issue um <clears throat> as long as you understand at some point there's got to be some judgment here uh he says obviously well patient but you know you know obviously well people because you've seen 40 or 50,000 of them it does take some time uh also, every time you ask a question and that question can be taking their vital signs, ordering a blood test, doing a history, you are assuming at that point responsibility for the results of that test that is if you if they've now got a high blood pressure, what are you gonna we're gonna talk about that in a little bit, but every time you order something. There are all kinds of incidental findings. Now, does that obligate you to move ahead and get another study, an MRI of the chest and not a chest X-ray? I think you have to be very careful how you crawl into these holes. The other thing is, uh, you say here, well, the expectation is higher. The mission creep has taken place. We now have to do more and more things. I'm not sure that's the case. It's it's rare that I see a, a medical legal case where the ordering or not ordering of one test was the cause of the malpractice. I see a lot more cases where communication between physicians, communication with the patient, these are causes of malpractice, not whether they got a calcium level whether they got a this, that, or another thing so so I am still from the low test group i have I have great friends, very smart, who are in the high test group. They believe that uh you know the law has done this to us. If they're going to do that, I'm going to get all kinds of normal test results and screw' them. well um and these are smart guys, great docs um it it's an attitude. I think, but, uh, I will maintain my minimalization of test position.
1: You know, I think that there is clearly a, uh, ethical issue here. We are, uh, the ones who are going to generate the bill for this patient, but we're not the ones who are going to pay for that patient. This is like ordering dinner for somebody at a restaurant where the waiter is going to order your dinner, but you're going to have to pay for it. Um, and so, frankly, I was a little concerned about the statement of our person who wrote in regarding a screening CRP urinalysis and often a chest x-ray. You know, why would you get a urinalysis on somebody unless they're, you know, in a state where they cannot talk to you about their symptoms? No, I have, don't have any. It doesn't burn when I pee, doctor, and I don't have any flank pain. And I've not had a urinary tract infection for the last 20 years. And why would you be measuring my urine? Yeah. And since my uh, kidney transplant, I've actually been pretty good. Yeah. And, Doctor, I have no cough. I'm not short of breath. And uh, I have no history of any significant lung disease in the past. Why would you be ordering a chest x-ray? So I'm, I am concerned about that. I, I, have, a, I have a bias that... Um, there's a generation of physicians out there who have become more and more and more consumed with testing, and they've learned it from their teachers and because their teachers learned it from the teachers before them. And there is this uh, this in- inordinate fear of being sued, which in fact is... The data now is something like 1 in 100,000 cases. We did a, we did a survey, a paper from a group that is really proactive in terms of teaching his doctors how to avoid being suits. Their incidence of suits now is down to 1 in 100,000 visits. And obviously they they win most of them, and most of them um, don't go to court. So in any case, I think that part part of the uh, anti-testing, protesting business needs to be looked at. Patients are depending on you to do the right thing and not take advantage of them and do the right thing. Um, All right.
0: Has another. uh, Yeah, he's going to he's going to get three hits at us. Yeah, this this
1: one's about NP privileges,
0: Greg. Uh, This is this is reasonable to ask this question. You know, if you're at a meeting with a lot of uh, PAs and NPs, whenever you challenge this sort of thing, you're looked at as the villain, the bad guy. Uh, I had a few comments like that when we were at the uh, emergency medicine boot camp. You know, Greg, you're not falling in line on on all of this. Um, What Kent uh, is talking about here is about the expansion of NP privileges in South Carolina, where a supervising physician can now expand oversight. And oversight doesn't mean being on site. It means at some point reviewing some records to six NPs and that for all practical purposes, they have the same uh, broad capabilities and and, and authority as family practitioners. He also cites an Ohio bill now working its way through the legislature, which would allow NPs to work without any supervision, i.e., Nobody has to look at any prescriptions or charts or anything else at any time. Now, that sounds to me like they've hung up a shingle to practice medicine. And I think this is what Ken is upset about. All I can say is this is not an uncommon fear amongst physicians.
1: Yeah, this is about autonomous practice, and it's really – it's in 23 states now, the, uh, the idea that uh, independent practice by nurse practitioners is um, allowed. The uh, nurse practitioners are under the um, nursing board of the state, not the medical board. And so there's really no relationship to the physicians uh, on this separation of church and state here between nurses and, and physicians. So the nursing board basically makes the case that Based on training and experience that nurse practitioners should be able to practice autonomously, they then make the case to the legislature of the state, which then uh, allows that to happen. And that's why 23 states now have approved it through that process. And it's pretty easy to make the case that uh, we cannot get doctors to go out into these rural areas and we need more help in primary care and that there's a shortage of primary care and that the literature and you know, Greg, I've looked at a ton of studies on this, right. and they basically show that there is it's there's there's really a, no substantial difference in the practice of nurses and, uh, and nurse practitioners and physicians, and patient satisfaction is strong, et cetera. All of these things have been looked at. Uh, I think these studies often have uh, some methodological issues, but that's be, be that here and now, there the idea is that this is happening and you can understand why in the rural areas we know, Greg, you and I know of emergency departments that are staffed solely by PAs uh, Right, in, exactly In uh, I know some guys in uh, Minnesota that uh, PAs are strictly working in the, the ER uh, the, f- the physician may be you know, 10 miles away something like that, and it's kind of like well, what's better PAs or NPs working in the ER or nobody work in the ER right
0: you know? that, that 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 is the question and i i think that what our listeners ought to understand is that at every level all the time other healthcare professionals want to expand their their capability and ability to bill for procedures sitting right now in the state of Michigan are uh, several bills the optometrists want to expand their care so that they can do minor procedures, treat infections of the eye, all that sort of thing. Um, There's even a group that wants to be able to do cataracts. Good luck on that, because if there's one thing that that pays the bills for ophthalmologists, it's cataracts. Uh, the, The lens in your eye, if it was platinum, uh, it wouldn't be worth as much money as taking it out. It's a very lucrative procedure, and so it's um, it, it's very much a difficult situation. All I can say is this fight is going to go on, um, and and whenever you have territory uh, where somebody wants to move in, it, it's going to there's going to have to be some resolution to this. The fact, this is why, by the way, a lot of departments now have PAs or NPs who are seeing patients not seen by the physician. I don't think physicians should sign those charts. Uh, if you're, Why would you take liability without responsibility and remuneration? It makes no sense to me. And so if they're asking you to sign charts on patients you haven't seen, be careful. Is this a some sort of methodology for them to be able to bill a higher level? What is it? Uh, we need to pay attention to this. I would ask your group
1: uh, leaders, uh, uh, if you're being asked to sign charts, why are you doing that? You can say, well, it's quality assurance. Well, fine. That's great. Quality assurance. You know, uh, Are there any kind of uh, forms going along with that to, ch- to keep a record of the number of patients seen by this, this PA and, you know, any issues that you have, you know, it's really not quality assurance. But if if you say it fine, just obviously don't get involved in any kind of billing issues because basically the, uh, the ability to go from 85% of physician charges to 100% of physician charges requires a face-to-face, face-to-face assessment and uh, by the uh, physician, talking to the patients, and agreeing with the uh, treatment uh, and assessment plan.
0: So let's move on. All right. On. Yeah, Ken, Ken you get, this is your third hit.
1: Uh, uh, well, um, I tell you, we're we've, gonna... been, we've been
0: behind. These have
1: been dribbling in yeah. <clears throat> over the months. Uh, yeah. Ken takes issue with the idea that FPs or IMs working in an emergency department should be held at a different standard than uh emergency physicians working in an emergency department. I um respectfully disagree although I don't to the extent that this is a matter of law uh I don't I don't know but Greg what's the phrase that you use?
0: <laughs> well, it it's it, it's it's a phrase we use all the time and that is they they have to practice uh at the level which is consistent with uh Light, uh, uh, providers of like or similar training. And so here in the state of Michigan, if you're from upstate Michigan and you're trained as a family practitioner and you're working in the emergency room, both sides will try to find an expert who has the same background, that is, was a family practitioner and worked in emergency medicine to try and meet that part of the bill, so that uh, the case will not be tossed. I, I, what's really happening here is Ken has a view of this that says, nope. You made a decision. You made an informed, conscious, affirmative decision to practice in that setting. Well, then maybe you uh, and they may not have the skill set or the training. Well, you've you've done that yourself. You you've made that decision. So uh he then sees that as exposing a patient to a foreseeable risk of inferior preparation or training. You know, that's that's a hard guy's stance on this. Uh there are going to be areas which do not have uh board certified physicians, emergency physicians. Uh Rick and I pointed out in one of the previous discussions um, a few months back that one half the emergency departments in the state of, of uh, Iowa are run by PAs uh, and they call into the University of Iowa for backup when they need it. Uh, what's better, to have nothing? Now, I I understand where some of those arguments are coming from, and quite frankly, some of them should close completely. Uh, but assuming we want to do the best we can, can This is a very difficult situation, and most of the states, particularly heavily rural states, um, understand they have a workforce problem.
1: Yeah, and the studies show that there is no increase in board-certified emergency physicians working at these places because these people are not going to get the – uh, experience that they need, that they, they're not going to get the procedures that they were trained to do. It is not going to be a satisfying, uh, work environment for them. So the fact of the matter is, is that in these little places, uh, board certified physicians are not going to go there.
0: Yeah, And I, and I, I, uh, once facetiously in a talk said, all you have to do is, uh, find where the nearest, uh, Nordstrom's is. Draw a compass around that, and within 80 miles of a Nordstrom store, there's no shortage of emergency physicians. So, what that means is we should build more Nordstrom stores in the country. But the bottom line is most of the board and emergency physicians, particularly academically based, gravitate toward. Uh, urban situations and not rural situations.
1: Greg, we're kind of running a little short on time, so I wanted to get into this uh, case that uh, where a hospital was not allowed to be removed from a case. Uh, what do they call that uh, phrase? Um, summary judgment. Right. Because, in fact, the doctor was wearing a jacket that had the hospital's name under his, and so there was the issue of Was that physician ostensibly representing
0: the hospital? Well, I'm glad you've got the phrase right, Rick. It is the apparent or ostensible agent of the hospital. What would the reasonable person believe? Who would they believe was controlling that person? If you work at Pupvangnituk General and you have a coat that says Pavangnatuk General, and you have a badge that says Pavangnatuk General, the average person would assume you've been put forward as the agent of that hospital.
1: Yeah, so they weren't able to get out of the case because of that. And, and frankly, the hospitals, the hospitals, it's in their best interest to get their name off of your lab coats. You can put the name of your group underneath your name, But get the hospital should say no, ostensible uh, representation. We we went out here. The other thing is that this case the doctor was wearing a ID badge from the hospital. Now that would be okay if all the other members of the medical staff were required to wear an ID badge. But if you're the only
0: one, then you sure to look like an employee to me. Yes, exactly. And and uh, most patients do not have the ability to separate that out. They don't know who pays uh, these people, where the checks come from, all that sort of thing. So I, I I don't think it's a totally irrational view or extension that they should think they're a represent the hospital. We're going to do so, one
1: case. Um, this is a case that we are borrowing from Chuck Pulcher.
0: Well that's the nicest term for it I've ever heard, Rick.
1: Uh, but... We're going to give Chuck a plug. Medical yeah, now yeah. Practice Insights is his free uh, newsletter. comes out every month. 2,300 subscribers. Uh, we'll give you the uh, website address to get to there, and you'll get your free uh, newsletter. He, he, he mentions that over the last four years, he has done nine cases of spinal epidural abscess. He quotes uh, our Yogi Berra. It's like deja vu all over again. Right, exactly. <laughs> in any case, this is a, a uh, very obese woman goes to the ER with back pain, very obese, back pain and numbness and tingling radiating into her right hip and leg. The prior history of a fall from a broken chair, you can understand why, uh, four weeks prior in a lumbar fusion 20 years ago, an x-ray is normal and the patient is discharged. When a second EP sees her a week later with worsening symptoms, despite being given a medral dose pack by the PMD, I think that medral dose packs and Z-Packs should be made into one pack, you know, the, <laughs> the med the Medzi pack and that, right. if
0: that'll take care of everything that's wrong with you. Well, we could have them in a dispenser in a lot of places. That way, you wouldn't have to bother go and see the doctor. In any case, the second doctor who saw her
1: after the dose was given uh, by the family doctor, did a white count, 19,400, did a SED rate, 60, and a CRP of 3.5, which is above the normal range. A rectal exam is normal. There was some decreased sensation in the right lower extremity, and she is discharged. Write the check. Uh, The following day, she goes to a better emergency department, where she is having new bowel and bladder symptoms and a uh, numb right foot and MRI, is ordered to, quote, rule out fracture, quote. So What's it's that, not that much what better. Are they thinking about? A lumbar spinal epidural abscess is diagnosed. Now, claiming that the diagnosis a day early would not have changed the outcome, her lawyer decides to drop the case. This lawyer needs to be shot. This was a write-the-check case. Here's a doctor who orders a white count that is grossly abnormal, a SED rate that is, uh, depending on what you're measuring, uh, like uh, 20 or 30 uh, whatever pounds uh, uh, above normal. Why would he even order those tests if he wasn't thinking of spinal epidural abscess, for crying out loud, a CRP thrown in on top of it? And the, and the lawyer walks away from this case. Why? Because she only had intermittent incontinence thereafter, you know.
0: This is worth at least a couple hundred thousand. Uh, uh, Rick, I mean, it depends on whether it happens to you or to me. If it happens to me, it's worth a lot more than that. All right. Well, this incontinence you have
1: would just be somewhat augmented. That's all. It would be hard to know the difference.
0: Well, what can I say?
1: Hey, listen, time.
0: uh, Wine of the month, Greg. All right. First of all, I'd been I'd been spanked by a letter. I'm not going to read that letter, but he wanted to make sure Rick and I knew that um, that uh, this is by Bruce uh, Wappen, uh, That uh, of course I mentioned a sparkling wine from France a couple of months ago, and he he uh, says you guys realize you can't use the term. Ah, shine. yeah, we know that. Yeah, but we know that. Come on, Bruce. Uh, that's give us a wine one hundred and one, Bruce. That's come on, wine one hundred and one, and particularly here in California, where they've uh, where they've been uh, spanked about this issue many times. We understand it. So the wine of the month uh, this time, and I even have the bottle here with me in front of me, and it's half it, gone. <laughs> it, well, no, no, Rick, it's almost all gone now. This is Hope Estate. Uh, This is Australian wine. I wish Mel was here to enjoy this. The uh, Hunter Valley of Australia is sort of like Napa is in California. It's where a lot of wine is made. Um, This is a 2014 Basalt Block Shiraz. Shiraz is the principal uh, grape of Australia, uh, much like uh, Zinfandel is for the state of California. So uh, if they're going to blend something, they have Shiraz in it. This is a uh, pure Shiraz. Uh, It is a heavy duty. Uh, This is military grade uh, red, uh, very full, very nice. If you're having pasta, you've got friends around you're, you've given them the good bottle as the first one, and you want to pull out a second bottle because they're already blasted. I would use this Hope Estate. Uh, it's it's very good, very meaty. Now, it's got a screw top on it, but we've already had that discussion uh, on this show that that doesn't mean much anymore. And if, uh, Rick, if you're at Costco uh, while you're getting your wife's favorite wine. Uh, La Crema. La Creme, uh, then get get a bottle of this, 11 bucks. Now, I'm trying to meet the needs of those people who bitch about the cost of my wines. 11 bucks. Brick, you can't beat that. And that's wine of the month. There you go.
1: Well, you know, I'm in my office here, which is this little outhouse, outbuilding, uh, outbuilding. And I I can see the, the cars in the driveway. And my wife just pulled up. And uh, where was she? Damn, she went. To, <laughs> she, she went to went my to, favorite store without me. You know, yeah,
0: Costco, right? Exactly.
1: Yeah, I, and I'm sure they get rid of all that Christmas stuff, and uh, all there's a line going around the building for the returns. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I was with, I was just came back from Scottsdale, and I was at the Costco there with my son Dan, and you see these this line uh, of people coming back in, and I saw one guy. Who had, you know, they have these big bags of candy, like the Tootsie Pops and all these, you know, the various candies. He's right. bringing back a bag of candy. What could possibly be wrong with a bag of candy, kind of thing? Yeah, he's, right. he's bringing it, it means- back. It only cost <laughs> six bucks in the first place. Right. Now, and he's willing to wait in this line that, that shows you what his time's worth. This is yes. another lady who's got a potted plant that she's bringing back. I see one flower drooping over, kind of thing. Uh, like these things don't last forever, lady. It's called a potted plant.
0: <laughs> In uh, any case. I, I, Rick, I understand. Before we before we get uh, t- into telling people the truth about everything, I'd just, uh, just like to thank you for being uh, a partner on this venture for all these years. And I hope we are able to continue on for many more. Thanks a lot.
1: Yeah, no, I feel the same way, Greg. I look forward to these uh, every month, whether anybody's listening or not. But <laughs> In fact, is this connected to anything? We, yeah, I have no idea. Is this going anywhere? Or is this just you and me just you know, chatting on a yeah, Wednesday I th- afternoon?
0: I think it is.
1: Okay, buddy. Uh, thanks very much. Have a great year. And I do want to wish you uh, – we're, obviously, we're not recording this in January. It's like we say we are because we, we got to process this. This thing is being uh, recorded on um, December 27th, two days after Gregory's birthday. Gregory was born and some other guy was born on the 25th. Both are very well-known.
0: Yes, yeah, very, very much. Uh, he's got a better collection system than <laughs> I do, but, but other than that, we're okay. Take care, my friend. See you. Bye.